For me, like I'm like the best thing I can do for my audience is make a thing that's true to me, and then hope beyond hope that like I'm not alone, and mm. and like that's how I do it. Every like that's the only thing I can think about, and it's like, mm-hmm. and then like and that's where the audience, though that's where when you learn you're not alone when it does resonate with someone like, like you, Amber, or with like mm-hmm. anyone that's like don't quit or you know um, see it multiple times or something. It goes. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made. My name is Amber Bradshaw and I am a new play dramaturg, educator, and arts administrator. On this podcast, I interview artists about their creative process. This interview is the second half of my conversation with Sawyer Estes, a director, dramaturg, and playwright, and co-founder of Vernal and Sears Theater in Atlanta. Please note we will be discussing 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as managing artistic director. For more about WTP and me, check out workingtitleplaywrights.com. I mean, I was just thinking about Lear, your last production. Um, and I, when I went to see that show, I, I left thinking, I want to read the script. Because I wanted to know what decisions y'all had made. Yeah. And I did have a question for you because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. And that is the voicemails at the end. Mm. Were yeah. those something that y'all added? Yeah. And they weren't yeah. part there of were the script. There were two big things we added to yes, Yojin yes. play. Mm-hmm. Part of which the excitement to do the play first off came from seeing the version that Yojin Lee directed at Soho Rep. Very cool. And it's not a perfect play. It's a messy play. Um, it has jagged edges and, and nonsensical bits. And yeah, we could refine it, but it's a play that's alive. And I think a play that will continue to be alive. And so a couple of things we did when we read the plays, we said, well, the, uh, you know, for me, early, I didn't direct this play either. So I'll say that I had a good hand in the shaping of the concept, but Aaron and Aaron directed it. Um, but we looked at it and we said, there's no father the father's absent. So the play was very, very funny, um, very postmodern, kind of ridiculous, um, but it didn't have the weight that the Vernal and Sears show would have. It didn't have that balance. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of comedy and a lot of opportunities, but where is the father? Where is the app? Like, and it wasn't good enough for the father to just be absent from the play. We needed to note and put into the space the absence. And so we put... So- Lear being in the space the whole time. His addition. That's not in play. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, huge. And I felt like then you have something, there's tension. So then if they're dancing or making jokes, but it was like out of the corner of my eye, I wanted to see the father in a kind of uh, like Prometheus bound. I wanted to see him in exile. Mm. And I wanted to feel that as a tension to the, postmodern, absurd, ridiculous, kind of slapstick, funny bits of the rest of the play. Mm. And I felt like now we have a Vernon Sear play. Now we have tension. And so that was added. And then the genius of Aaron Boswell, that was a genius decision on her end for the, and I wouldn't, I don't think I would have come up with it, but it was, uh, it was the voicemails were hers. And it had came to her one night. And it honestly, for me, 
being with my wife and this is how we like to make decisions. And I felt like this was a decision on her end that was true to the way we like to work. And it just came from something true in her mm-hmm. every night. This woman, she lives in nostalgia and she goes through her phone and she's looking at photos as far back as you can look at her family or at pictures of us or her animals. And she goes to bed with that every night, like in this kind of like, and, and it came from that sense of nostalgia and like her parents getting older and like this, mm. that's stored. And she made this decision to end the play on that, like very personal truth. Mm. And that's where I'm like, that wanted to come from me. Cause that's, I want to, I don't have that personal truth, but it was so right for it. And like, I, I was probably one of my favorite, favorite bits. Did she feel that the Lear presence and the voicemails were connected at all? Yeah. 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 They feel I, connected. For yeah. Me. It for was, me, they were very connected. Yeah. But like, you know, we were, we're looking at our parents in a kind of exile. And as we've gone, you know, to the city and we are so self-interested and we're working our jobs and we're trying to become artists that are respected or build a theater company. And then we took this moment with that play to kind of pause and go, ah, what are we like, what's all the stuff that we're negating? What are we sacrificing for all this theater? Yeah. For all this theater that we no one We should always ask her. those questions because <laughs> yes. our families do matter y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Parents, it's such a good question to ask. Yeah. And they're not around forever. No. I mean, our parents, I mean, her parents are older than our grandma like 71, 72. Oh yeah. And we're looking at this and we're like, God, here we are in rehearsal for this. And we spend six months in rehearsal and we see them once or twice a year. And yeah. what are we doing? Mm. And, and, and a lot of theater, again, kind of the way we go back is like, we're an audience member. And it's a question that we needed to ask either to move back home or to become more sure of the importance of the work we're doing and to be more, true because like mm. more aware of like yeah we are negating our parents or maybe we're not having children or maybe we're because we have to do this thing so we should probably stop complaining that we have to do this thing and just and be joyful because it's important or because it's mm-hmm. serving a function and um give it like it's due seriousness got it so uh, that's what we're working through that was through. really beautiful and i just want to clarify for listeners that the um So when you walked into the space, there was a really long sheer curtain that was splitting up the space diagonally, which looked really cool. Um, And behind the curtain is clearly Lear. And it's not clear where he is, but it feels like a retirement home. And he's in front of a television that's staticky. Right, or you could go with COVID we too, about, just an isolated person. But all of it, we were thinking about all of that. All of those different things. So he's literally like lit by a television. It's got this sort of creepy vibe, and he's there the entire time almost. I think there's one bit he's not in, and it was very powerful to have him on stage the whole time because you just the the constant reminder of his presence was just incredibly theatrical, and yeah. really was very powerful. And this idea of Lear and the lost kingdom and the lost everything and the sense of his isolation, right, was really powerful. And then the idea of isolation of aging became very clear, um, which in watching him throughout the piece, and then the voicemails at the end, 
were in the darkness. And honestly, a lot of people left and missed them. I couldn't believe I was like, stop, don't leave. This shit ain't over yet. <laughs> There's still stuff happening. But people kept leaving um, because it was unclear, as you said, if it was over or not, which yeah. was fine. Right. Yeah. But there were, oh, a slew of emails from parents. All of our parents. All parents just parents. checking in on you. Hope you're doing well. Love you so much. And I just, oh, I cried. Yeah. I was deeply touched. Just yeah. like deeply, deeply touched. And the, the connection of the aging and the isolation and the potential maybe retirement home or something like yeah. that with the voicemails. Like, and then there was also something in the program where um, the the note was like, we're all coming into our thirties and like, we're growing up basically. And we're realizing that we're missing stuff when we're here yeah. and we're trying to come to terms with that. And it was really, really powerful. So like, Kudos to all of y'all and the team and Aaron and the, the Aaron's for putting that together. Cause it was really powerful. You congratulate like young Jean Lee. There's the Pascal speech at the end. Where he oh goes, wow. On that and speech. On and on and on. Like, his father dying or, you know, and, and, mm. and it's just on and on. And one night I just listened to it and I was just like, ah, this is young Jean Lee is like confessing to us. Like we are the priest yeah. and young yeah. Jean Lee is just confessing. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and you know, that again, the play breaking down to a kind of like, just I'm me speaking to you and this is my confession and it's a very vulnerable moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, beautiful. And that was Pascal who, mm -hmm. who did that. I mean, that was a really powerful monologue, really beautifully done too. Yeah, for him to just sit there and be really real. honest, yeah, really real. real and, and After seeing some very experimental style movement work, right? Yeah. <laughs> Going from like hardcore, like <laughs> experimental style to like, and now I'm a human sitting in front of you talking about my dad. And like that awareness that like Pascal is the actor. It's God, but I just heard this thing about Ann Carson. It's what we're on the glass. This and Ann Carson says, why do we call them actors? It's because we, they act for us. Oh God. And, yes. You know, and it's like Pascal in that moment, just making all of our confessionals, you know, to our parents, all the things that we are too afraid to say, or that we had, we create this space in the theater to say it to them. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then we go and then we take that one step further with the curtain call and then we, we listen to them as a kind of callback. And so. did some of your parents hopefully get to see that show? Yeah. And I think the, I know Aaron's parents came. I think a lot of the actors' parents came. And um, Did you see any parent response that you would want to mention? Um, Was there anything that... I don't know. I, I think... I feel like I would be speechless if I was them. Yeah, just sort parents, of flattered by the honor and not sure what to say. Yeah, parents are. I know that Aaron's parents were deeply moved. Um, every time Aaron's parents, her dad's this incredible anesthesiologist, brilliant, brilliant man, one of the most respected pain doctors in the country, kind of. And um, he, uh, anytime he comes to the work, there's a he arrives in Atlanta, and the demeanor and the disposition of him changes after seeing the show. Mm. And his eyes are just like, oh. you know, because it's hard to define what you're doing as an artist or your success. You don't get like a, you don't get a little plaque that you put on your wall, really. That's like you're yeah, you're no. a doctor of medicine, and and now you make a lot of money, and 
respect. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we make work kind of into a void in a lot of ways. And, and, and every, you know, the only way, the only justification of it or the, is the look in someone's eyes at the end or the room in the eye, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, that's what we, what I see on him every, every time. Um, oh, that's comes. awesome. He came to Ubu, this is another anecdote, but when he came to Ubu, my father-in-law, he spent, he saw it on, I think like a Friday night. And then he, he's a type five Enneagram. So <laughs> I love you. I love your Enneagram. It's great. <laughs> he, he spent the whole next day and he read every translation that I was working from. He read probably a dozen translations, but the whole day reading translations. And then he read my translation. And then he saw the play again. And then the no next, kidding. I swear to God. And then the next morning, he just looked at me and he goes, no one will have any idea what you did here. <laughs> he was like, this is the best translation of Ubuwa that's in existence. And uh, it was so cool because it was like my father-in-law and he just read them all. And he's just like, um, that is so fantastic (laughs) oh my god but you know in that kind of way of working like i'm not out there peddling that translation or i'm not like it wasn't i'm not telling people you created your own translation yeah yeah whoa dude from several sources and but but you should yeah you should do something with that i know people yeah it was good yeah yeah but it was like we but it was like you know it's like because I, it's a rough read. It is. I mean, it's terrible. rough. It's, a terrible it's terrible. So, it's terrible, y'all. No offense, Jerry, but you know, it's badly written. But I will say, I you know, having seen the production, I, it was an incredibly powerful version of it um, in every way, that's in every hard. single way. And that's the weird thing that I am as an artist, because you talk about how you define or you're a writer. Or it gets it yeah. gets real hard because now I'm. They're so everything's like so inextricably woven. Where like early on, when I graduated, when I was studying under Aldi, I thought I'm gonna move to New York and I'm going to be, you know, I'm gonna be of this ilk and I'm gonna be. People are gonna think I'm incredible. And what was the first thing you wanted to do? I wanted to be a playwright. That one. Like, you wanted to be a playwright. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I wanted to be canonical, essentially in the ilk of these playwrights that I admired. You know the. 20th century modernism, you know, and particularly like theater of the absurd. And then the thing kind of moved that and figure out my position in it. Who are your absurd playwrights that you like the most? Samuel Beckett, Edward Albee, Harold Pinter, Jeanne, Ionesco, you know, I'm really interested in, in all of them. And then, but I mean, really go through modernism, Buchner, like they just, just Jerry, Sarah Kane, I don't know where she fits in all that. It's a different movement, but (laughs) it's a different thing. But yeah, I wanted to kind of fall in line with that and be more literary. And I always wanted to write. Before I was ever in the theater, I knew I was a writer. Mm -hmm. And, And then through working and through the company and the influence of my creative partners, just kind of realizing that theater isn't just simply text on stage mm. and then me being so and this is a problem for the theater world because theater world thinks that there's writers and there's directors and we only the film world has writer directors theater world it doesn't it's changing a little but still i just i'll tell you this off air i i applied to this we we're looking at tour space in new york 
And I literally had an artistic director tell me for about hurricane season that I, uh, that they wouldn't consider it unless there was a different director because they didn't find any use in a writer. Someone directing their own work never found any use in that. And that's quite a statement. It was, I mean, I was that's furious, but then I wasn't in any position to, I just said, I understand. We'll look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I now, I just can't imagine not directing my work. And it's because some of it's because I feel like I'm a better director than I am a writer. And then at the same time though, my writing, I'm more free as a writer if I'm going to direct it mm. um, because I don't have to do the Beckett like obsessive stage direction. Yeah. yeah. Cause I know I'll leave it. Um, or with exterminating angel, I found finally I had freedom. This goes back to the problem of character. I had freedom if I just wrote what I heard more like Sarah Kane and then knew that the director would come back later and give it characters, mm -hmm. would give it speakers rather than like in the moment when I'm writing, having to think, well, would Amber like say this or that in that way, with those words, or, you know, and like justifying with the problem of character. Whereas like, I just hear it. And then later through a kind of process of what we did with 448, find speakers and find justifications, then I would get to a good place and I would have a freedom in my writing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, how would I, like, that's good. How do I define as a theater artist? And it's like, I'm a writer and director. I, now I conceive of, I do a lot of scenic design. I work You're with also people. a dramaturg. Dramaturg, sure. Mm -hmm. Without the processes <laughs> without like I'm like I have so many feet and so many things that like I don't do anything it's like that's what my anxiety doing this because I'm like directors or dramaturgs I feel like they have um I took one directing class like I've, I've not I took one directing class and so you know I'll hear people and I know like about Augusta Wall or I know like people working with you know Meisner based kind of acting training or um all these other kind of more theoretical ways of working and you know people come from like and Bogart's like line of thinking it goes on and on and I'm just like well I don't I just work and I'll kind of I read it and I interpret and I'm and I pull from a lot of things that I you know um but I don't that's it becomes really hard to me like what's your method or what's your I don't have any like I'm not trained <laughs> so your method changes based per, on per show oh yeah per, per project yeah, and I'd like spend a lot of time thinking about like what that might be mm -hmm. and what you know in this in the glasses that we're doing. I know like that there's a lot of a kind of Brechtian way of going about it because it's an essay. And so I'm like, oh right. okay, well I know enough about I know enough about Brecht to like, you know, like the learning play, you know, or like sure. and, and certain like distancing effects. Um so you have adapted this piece, right? I've just from, I've staged it word for word. Staged it word for word. Yeah, word for Got word. Got it. Okay. Um, which for me was the challenge. It was like, how do I stage a poem, a lyric essay, word for word, making that making that theater, making that incredibly compelling without changing it at all. How do you do that? Mm, you gotta come in September. Ah, well, I won't be missing it. You got um, a pretty, pretty hefty video design, right? Isn't that part of yeah, it? Yeah, huge video design. You, you, you go. So you have logos. You know, I think about it and think about um, Nietzsche's uh, uh, 
Oh God, uh, Birth of Tragedy. And you think of like Apollo and Dionysus and it goes back to balance. Mm. So it's the same way we were doing Lear. So I've got a lot of logos. Carson gives us a lot of logos. Mm-hmm. Where's the pathos? Where's the Dionysus? Where's that like driving theatrical energy in the piece? And you look, you start to look between the lines for it. And you look at what the piece, because you think about a poem and you think like, so I think about, okay, she's writing this for someone to read this as a poem. And so she's, you know, when you're doing that, you're getting them A to, a to Z in a very economical fashion, especially Ann Carson. It's very economical. Play to be economical, well, that's, we're not there for something economical. We're there for like an experience. We're there for life. Mm. And, and so then I go, okay, well, then how do I make the gaps in the line breaks? How do I fill those with life? How do I like expand the spaces of it? And in in doing that through imagery, through video, music, and and then we do you know so I started conceiving of this as a it's like a thirteen part dance piece within like a kind of Ivovanova like minimalist drama, a kind of naturalism, and then a kind of Brechtian essay logos actor spectator kind of way of going about too where we step and we talk about it and we work through it and oh what's all that for what was it connected going back to the spectator from our last episode yeah, yeah yeah and and but i don't have any sense of like i don't i don't i couldn't i would never be able to train or teach anyone in Bilal or wreck really because i'm not i i would i feel a bit of like fraud but if I get into the space and I and I, I know enough, I mean we've seen it all. Where we see Brecht in cinema, we see that's where I like kind of we we see these tools and we know we're using them, you know. Mm-hmm. So like in a, in a way, and that kind of goes to my sense of like everything's in me, and right. and I don't have to maybe name it. It becomes a little difficult in these kind of things. I feel like oh you got to name it, or you got to be an expert on something. And it's like, no, this, these mediums, these forms, they live in me and I'm in this room and I sense what the piece needs. And then we put it all together in a kind of balance. And yeah, but, and then we have great, we have great people that can, I go, it's a 13 part dance piece. I'm not a choreographer, I don't know what that means, but I know we need 13 part dances because we got to combat a lot of this text and I want to combat it with like modern dance. So you tell your choreographers, Aaron and Aaron, yeah. right? And you say, here's what I want to achieve. And then they come up with something in collaboration with you. Is that kind of yeah. how it works? This one too has been more of like, I don't want to, they don't look to me for the answers of what this is. I've staged everything else. Like before we got into space, I spent months and months like tirelessly um, staging the play in my head for mm-hmm. a way of going about it. And then we of course remain free to change. But I felt like this piece needed a kind of authoritarian type structure to the way it moved mm-hmm. for whatever reason, just sense. And then, but every time I get to these dance pieces, I go skip it because I want them. I know that they'll do better than me. And mm-hmm. so it's like, don't look to me for these because y'all, I need like y'all's like genius on, on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I need the choreographer, I need the movement. I and mean, people that have like moved me into a kind of interest in movement theater to do their thing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they're, 
And then she, you know, Aaron, they do it in ways that I want it. You know, they do it in the space in real time. It makes me anxious because I'm like losing time. This is taking a long time. Mm-hmm. We should plan this. Um, but they want it to come through. It has to come through the actor's body. Yeah. So they can't do it ahead of time. They want the yeah, spontaneity. Totally get that. They want the spontaneity. Yeah. And so Absolutely. we do it that way. And, and then I know that the piece, for me, think about the construction, you'll see a rigidity in some ways. You'll see a very clear way of going about it and then we'll have these just bursts of like movement and dance that come forth from a kind of spontaneity mm-hmm. and I think and then I go I think that'll give it balance I think that will they'll inform each other mm-hmm. yeah I think also too what I'm hearing is if there's a, a the, there are structures and systems around everything you do every piece you work on that are specific to the piece that provides the driving force and the tension rather than characters providing the driving force and the tension, which makes a lot of sense in having seen several of, of your pieces because there's something to, if, if you are letting the actors essentially move where they want to move when they want to move, right? Mm-hmm. You have to give them a grid. <laughs> There has to be structure. structure. You can't just be like, do whatever you want. That's not going to work. It's going to be a mess, Dead right? Man. Yeah. So you create a really, and, and I do this with working title, yeah. is my programming has a lot of structures around it. And for me, that's the way the space is held. Mm-hmm. And that's how people know how to come into the space and be in the space, right? Yeah. So I think there's something really powerful about that. And I was also yeah. thinking... It seems like everything y'all do is a form of adaptation or actually a brand new piece. Is yeah. that correct? It's what we, yeah, mostly what we want to do or work that we see is overlooked or mm-hmm. to people are afraid or, and, and work which has space for us to fill. Mm-hmm. And so 448 under like, you know, it's overlooked. People are too afraid to do it. It's too difficult. And then a ton of space new play development for me or if I'm working like I don't want I want space like if I'm mm-hmm. going to pick something it's going to be spacious now like anything in art that's tough like because you can't have like you just said you can't have a room where there's where you're just flailing about like and it's just abstraction because mm-hmm. it's just then it's just it is just gobbledygook for intellectuals that doesn't amount to anything so that's where the craft comes in and the art comes in. It's like how much abstraction, how much space. And Kane in 448 gives you just enough because you know at 440, she gives you time. Mm-hmm. At 448, something happens. And, and, and then she gives you uh, very early on, she said, I'd like to kill myself. And so you say, this play is, she gives you the kind of thesis. This is a, exploration or rumination on my struggle to find a reason not to or mm-hmm. my struggle to yeah to keep going and you know a lot of people look at that piece and look at it wrong and say it's a suicide letter they look at it as a kind of aftermath based on her biography and when I said no we're not looking at it like that we're looking at it as she's someone writing it still living and trying to struggle to survive and that like blew it open this isn't something that is taking place in the aftermath 
That's a really powerful decision to make. Glasses, yeah. We, we kind of try to turn things on their heads. The play, I just, I feel like, you know, the play tells you what it is. The right. work, if you're writing, the writing, mm-hmm. t- if you're really doing it, like if you are just, and Glasses, they'll talk about this with Emily Bronte and talk about Bronte being the kind of, Charlotte would say she's captive to Wuthering Heights. Um, you know, or like uh, Heathcliff didn't come forth from Emily. Heathcliff controlled Emily. Heathcliff, Emily was under Heathcliff's spell. And and I think that like writing or directing or anything, when you're really, you are, you don't have control. You're in service to the thing. And I, that's me as a director too. I only, I'm really sure and careful about what I choose because I know it's like them. Like I'm not. It's not me. Like I'm. Yeah, I'm in relation. I'm putting myself into it. I understand to some extent. But really, it's like I'm in awe of the thing, mm-hmm. and I, that's why I only do work that I. That's mm-hmm. like only Sarah Kane, or mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I do Wojciech. I do Buchner. Now I'm doing Ann Carson's. I think she should win the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And it's like I want to spend a year of my life like learning about Ann Carson mm-hmm. and admiring Ann Carson. And I want to impart upon my actors a love for the brilliance that is Ann Carson. I want them to listen to her lectures. I want them to read everything she's done. I want to like, because I want to sit there in a kind of um, awe, you know, in a kind mm-hmm. of spiritual awe of the thing too. And the thing that she's, because it's also, she's just a conduit for this other thing we're trying to do. She's mm-hmm. just in service. Some people have a lot of access to it. She's one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're in, we're just so through the piece or the process of making, we have all these, you know, if I could encourage, we have all these like methods or ways of going. But ultimately, it's like the important thing is the humility of self to be in service to something greater than you are. Have a few tools to be able to do what it tells you to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we try to work in that way. That's really cool. I love that. And there's a lot of um, video design in this piece, right? Oh, yeah. And you did quite a bit in hurricane season as well, which was really well done. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your experience with video design. And um, like, do you have any training in it? Did you take any classes? And how do you approach it? Because mm-hmm. I think your integration of video design and theater is is some of the best I've seen. So how do you sort of put those two things together? I have no training in video design. And I work with some great people, um, some people in the film industry in Atlanta. Uh, shout out to Matt Shively, Hannah Aline, um, who I'm currently working the most with. Um, there's a photographer on this one. Her name's Haley James, who's doing all. We've done a four-part photographic series from every season over the past year of this relationship, and she's doing all the photography, and she's just brilliant. And then we're she's giving that to Matt Shively, and then he's putting it into theatrical space as projection. And we I've conceived of it, and then they're making it happen. Um, so you put together like a full schedule of photography and video design? Like how, when you 
When yeah. you say you conceptualized it, tell me more. Basically, it's like I want to take, I want this piece to be goes into space. So the glass essay begins at a breakup. First line, um, when uh, I'm thinking of the man who left in September, his name was Law. And so I come in as a director and I say, okay, we get the breakup. And the whole poem is about the breakup. Okay. For me, the exposition is very interesting in this one. Like for Pinter, no use for exposition. For me, <laughs> exposition is important because I have a piece full of logos. So that, that the pathos is in the exposition, actually. And the piece doesn't give me that, so I've got to do it. And so then I go, ah. so what are my tools? And so I think, man, it's a lot of life that this couple's had before it ended. Mm. And there's a lot of joy. And, and so I thought about the space. And, and I said, what if the, around the space we were just bombarding this character as she's sleeping? And this is a very biographical type of thing. My first love, when we had a big breakup. My first like true breakup, I couldn't sleep for like forever. I could, I mean, not for, but I couldn't sleep for like weeks, months, um, because I'm a dream about her. <laughs> and I was like, well, if I'm awake, I could, you know, I was in high school, so it's like I was drinking, or like I could go play basketball, or I could be with friends, I could do these other kind of forms. But when I was asleep, I was uh, like under her spell in that way, you know, mm. and, and I couldn't escape. And it was joyful stuff. And I was like, and so when I read this, I was like, man, it's kind of what happens is we become kind of prisoners to former joy. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I started thinking of, well, what if we, this kind of this is a spoiler, I don't care though, but it, when the, if, if the audience is coming in to a space where, this, where there's joy all around it mm -hmm. and happiness from four seasons of, mm -hmm. a, of a couple's relationship before it ended. And so I gave them that. I was like, let's start now. Let's get four seasons of, and let's look at, so we kind of did a dramaturgical thing. So I said, let's do it autobiographically. Let's look at former relationships that we've had. Let's restage some of them. Let's look at rom-coms that we grew up with when Harry met Sally. Um, you've got mail. Let's stage some of those photos. Um, oh. And let's, uh, you know, a couple like cooking, a couple um, someone in the bathtub, a lot of like single perspective type of looking, like someone taking a photo of someone else, mm -hmm. um, unfinished, raw kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, what if the piece is haunted by that the mm -hmm. whole time? And so then the design is like, and not only that, but like, what if the design is a material like scrim? And then you're actually, so on the inside of that, material you have trauma and longing and ache and a kind of um reeling a kind of chaos and then you're looking through like when life had place or when life had joy so making the audience look through that um and so that's kind of the video like design on this and it's going to be really complicated and crazy i'm having it in 360 <laughs> And so what we do and make these decisions, though, is like, what is, what is theater? What is film? And what can theater do that film can't do? What can film do that theater can't do? How can we yeah. use them? So what theater can't do is the close-up. So there's huge use in, in, mm, in the close-up. Love it. And I think, and in, in particularly for pathos or mm -hmm. like psychology or something. 
So yeah. you look at that and then you have, there's, that's a really big use that we'll do. So you have like your fixed perspective as an audience and then you can see the close up and then the relationship of those images. And then you also now can manipulate, we'll often manipulate recorded, like pre-recorded video or pre-recorded photos against the space. Um, or pre-recorded action. In hurricane season, we did pre-recorded action over a scene that was happening in real time, and there's tension. And we had them basically doing the same, the exact same work in terms of the staging, but then there was tension at the time from the fixed dead video Mm -hmm. and then the the live. And I thought that that told an interesting story about life and how it is fixed or a kind of trap entrapment. Um, and, and so then you can go, you start to play with it on that. Then you can do live video where it's like, okay, let's actually, this wants to be, um, live, which Matt will run it through a tarot deck. Like they'll use on film sets that sends it back to so video. So you're going to do loop. live video too? We're doing live video on this Right too. on. And so then you have the relationship and like, and so then you have tribal tertiary decision. What is live versus pre-record? Like what are those sure. things connotating? And how would you use that language in the piece? So, you know, you make, and you make pretty conscious decisions about that. And so, yeah, we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do live video in this from the Raptors overhead um, and then pre-recorded on another thing. And yeah, we think, so you'll get live the life inside and then you'll get the kind of history on the outside mm-hmm. and then have that tension. <laughs> so it sounds to me like it's kind of what I thought. It's like there is a very systemized structure to each thing you do and it all kind of connects and you've really thought it through in depth. Like even before you started working on the piece, it sounds like you're, you're collecting dramaturgy on the artist primarily, which I think is so smart, yeah. right? Because you know that's that's what the conversation really is. It's back to her. Right. But then, like, you've mentioned a lot of really classic theatrical methods and texts. And these are things that you've learned that you've just brought with you and you've taken from them and, you know, learning from those. So I think there's a lot to be said for, like, we can't, we don't need Stanislavski. We don't need method. We don't need any of that stuff. There's a lot of other structures and systems that have been created. Yeah. Um, even Greek theater, right? Yeah. Which is one thing you've been talking about. And you lose a lot of time using that shit, honestly, because if you use Stanislavski, you're just going to lose time talking about psychology. And what matters is the actor's body and the tenor of their voice in the space. Like, that's what communicates. You yeah. talk forever about why they do this or that. It's like, yeah, it's- yeah. Well, and also I've heard you say theater exists in the body, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that what a character is is so much more than what they've said. Right. And so how do you live fully in that character if all you're thinking about are intentions and super objectives, which is all heady. Right. And I always say, I think you're getting to something I often say, which is I'm not I am not at all sold on objectives or people knowing what they want, because from my experience, people don't really know what they want or or they do. And then it changes or something like that. Right. So it's very. um the idea of a super objective is just uh, silly to me. Yeah. Oh, man. This could be when, when hurricane season. Sure. Alex's scar on her belly. Mm-hmm. And like made a very, this is, and this is something that like Albie might have disagreed with because I've heard little bits of on this, um, him addressing something like this. 
but it was, you know, I didn't know that she had that before I sat down. The, the play didn't come from it. She just, the, uh, the thing in my head when I was writing it, lifted her shirt and it had a scar on the belly. And I said, that's interesting. And, and I kept it. And then through that play though, we never reveal what that is. And people will ask me, well, you know what the scar is on her belly? And I've had that. And they expect me to know, like, and I'm like, I can give you, sure, I'll pull, pull out of my ass, like, an answer. If you want an answer, I can give you, but, like, it's not true. I just made it up. And I'm actually more interested in, like, not knowing either. So, mm-hmm. like, don't force me to know what is on her belly. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know. And um, that kind of, you know. Does the actor need to know or not know? It's like, what's useful to the actor? If they need to know, then come up with something. If they don't need to know, then don't. Like, um, but that kind of goes into that kind of, like Stanislavski, super objective, with think you need to know what this thing is. The playwright, you know, most canonical playwrights would say, you know, the reveal of it, you know, or, or something like you get a whole play and you're not going to, you're not going to explain the, a huge trauma of the character. <laughs> Or you're not even as a writer even gonna know, or you know, but like I'm like no, the mystery is in the in the not knowing. Well, there's something you said for creating work that creates questions rather than answers questions, and I don't think experimental theater ever intends to tell you what to believe, right? I mean, it's it's very like choose your own adventure, yeah. right? And I think. This Ann Carson piece sounds really beautiful and also like really triggering for someone who's going through a breakup, right? But that to me, seeing something like that as you're going through a breakup could be part of your healing, right? It could be part of something you learn and then you grow from that and you don't need to know all the answers, right? It's like, I mean, we're talking about 448, Sarah Kane, trying to explain mental illness, trying to explain humanity. I mean, my God, it's impossible. Why... Why did anyone actually think Stanislavski had even come close, right? I mean, that's my question. It's like, it's far too simplified. And I think that's how art is, you know? Like, if you wanted to be controlling of the audience experience, I think you would fail. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, you know what you can control. It's the structures and systems you create in the show. Things I can eliminate. Right. And the things that you can eliminate, but like the actual experience they have, whether they like your ending or not, yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's it's not it's not up to you, and I think that's the um, and that's be, the most courageous part about making work. You it'd know, be so foolish to think you could, you know, or that you're, you know, you know, see a, a, ninety people see our shows a night or something. It'd be so foolish to, for me to think that I know how to address a perfect argument to every ninety every one of those 90 people in order to bring them out a better version of themselves or something, or to mm-hmm. give them a pleasure, or if you want to look at it, just the basic to give them a pleasurable night out. Like, <laughs> Here's some catharsis for you. Yeah. Now go home and sleep soundly. Like, <laughs> yeah. You will not find that at Vernal and Sear. <laughs> and this is assumption that we make of like, that we think we know audience. It's like, no, there's a 90 individual, like you have no idea about like like have respect for those human beings by not labeling them and making them small right like by not deciding they're going to be a certain way yeah i think we talk about that the the idea of audience on the podcast and like 
really shifting that perspective. I feel like this is a very healthy way of looking at it. And you just kind of, I mean, for me, like I'm like the best thing I can do for my audience is make a thing that's true to me and then hope beyond hope that like I'm not alone. And, mm. and like, that's how I do it. Every, like that's the only thing I can think about. It's like, mm-hmm. and then like, and that's where the audience, though that's where when you learn you're not alone, when it does resonate with someone like, like you, Amber, or with like, mm-hmm anyone that's like don't quit or you know um see it multiple times or something it goes ah like i'm not I'm not alone so true that's such a key component but i think if you think about too much about like what they want or don't want like you're it's, it's gonna you get in the way the and you and you're you're actually to me that you're and i think just a lot of theaters do this you are degrading them like you are in this yeah. position of authority or programming and then you think like you're assuming that they're not this or not that or that they are this or that they are that and i just i just think it's a slippery slope like it's it's gets it's dangerous Mm -hmm. and i have like an anecdote this won't make it in but let's get it in (laughs) but it's like one of my favorite stories and it like was a really fundamental um oh god it's gonna be a camera to be like what I come from like a Texas oil family, like, um, and I used to work on for my dad on, I did like, I paid for my school through working in in oil and I would go back every break to like pay for my school by doing that. And one time I'm on this oil lease and I'm sitting out there in the middle of Texas nowhere. And one of my dad's, like like an employee that comes in, he's like hauling oil off from the, the well. Um, He's, he goes, what are you reading? And I was like, I was reading Endgame. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Hilarious. This is so true. So I'm reading Beckett's Endgame. And he, you know, it takes about 45 minutes to fill up a, a truck with a load of oil. So we're just kind of kicking it and we just kind of shoot the shit. And it's a man that's been living in the Panhandle of Texas his whole life. Just, you know, all only ever finished high school, no education uh, beyond that, and has lived in Panama, Texas, worked in oil, and never read, no, doesn't know anything about theater, nothing, no even semblance of understanding, and he's like, well, give me some of that, let me read it, and he starts reading Endgame, and I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be interesting, and he just starts chuckling to himself. And the man, <laughs> and the man just laughing, and he starts laughing hysterically. And I'm like, he's like, and then he hands it back. He's like, that's funny shit. <laughs> yes, and it I'm is. Like, and I go like, I was like, you like it, and it, and then we actually kind of would read it back a little to each other. And it was the, it was like clobbing ham. Like, well, he's like, well, why don't we leave? And he says, well, there's nowhere else. And he goes, well, then like. You know, why don't you find someone else to be with? And he goes, "There's no, there's here. Why don't you leave? There's nowhere else. Why don't you find someone else to be with? There's no one else." And the man thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and, and so then I'm like, to go back, you have all these theaters in America that think like people don't get Endgame, or audience isn't smart enough for Endgame, or it's too scary, mm-hmm. or too. And then you have this this guy who like just in this moment, I wasn't tell, I was on his level. Yeah, I was working in oil. He's working in oil, and there was nothing about him that said that Samuel Beckett is, you know, the premier 
playwright of the 20th century or he's this like master of like modernist theater like like for this like elite population he just read these lines why don't you go somewhere else i can't go anywhere else i'm trapped why don't you find someone else there's no one else i'm only with you and he got that he's a man who understood what meant to be trapped Mm -hmm. and i'm like and i just think that if we as audience as theaters and like if we would stop belittling mm-hmm. and we would just go, there are inherent truths here and we're going to do them and we're not going to think if they're too smart or too dumb or whatever, mm-hmm. we would stop alienating those people. And and mm-hmm. I try to approach it that way. And it's like, even this, I'm doing this freaking glass essay play. It's a freaking essay by brilliant Ann Carson. It's too smart for me. And and I'm not sitting here being like, oh, this is too smart of a text, or people have read Wuthering Heights or don't know Bronte. Because yeah. that's, I don't know if they've read. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they, and for me to act like that is, even if it's true, for me to put, to say that is pedantic and is arrogant. Mm. And like, I like, try, I want to quash that. Like, if I can do anything, it's like, you don't know. And, I've encouraged, and what we do in our theater is like, don't, you know, hurricane season is too smart to this. No, it's the audience is as smart as us. Mm-hmm. The audience knows, and, and even if they don't know theatrical history like I do, they know what it means to be human. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such a fun conversation. Yeah. Yay, I cannot wait to continue the conversation about Verno and Sear with Aaron. So, <laughs> yeah. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sawyer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll check with you next time. Thank you for tuning in to part two of this conversation with Sawyer Estes about Vernal and Sear Theater. Vernal and Sears' upcoming production of The Glass Essay by Ann Carson will open on February 29th and close on March 17th. VNS also offers classes in Suzuki, Laban, and much, much more. Check those out and join their mailing list at vernalandseertheater.com. And stay tuned for part three of this series on VNS with Aaron Boswell. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Table Work How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, Support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Table work.